Road, okay? It is one of the more interesting, more confusing passages in the Bible. So if you like to think, and if you like to have questions, and if you like to kind of have your mind messed with, you're in for a treat. If you're not like that, just turn to John chapter 3, okay? There's a really good verse 16, I recommend it. You can just read that a few times. Um, Daniel 10, man, it, I promise you, okay, we're going to have some questions, we're going to have some things that perhaps we never thought about before uh, as Daniel receives this vision and some strange things start happening. Now, are you familiar with a guy named Thomas Jefferson? Quick. Quiz, okay, I believe he was a founding father of America. I'm not the best with history. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, that's right. Thomas Jefferson actually created his own Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. It's called the Jefferson Bible. He had a few beliefs about the way the world operated that contradicted with certain things that were in the Bible. So his solution to this was to cut out certain things from the Bible. Probably not the best thing to do, okay, as a Christian, but, but he goes through and he cuts out some, some big chunks from the Bible. And in particular, it's interesting to watch what he does with the Gospels. So you can actually get your hands on a copy of the Jefferson Bible. This is the Bible that he read out of, that he gave to people. This was his kind of thing. What he cut out was anything that went against what he termed reason, and anything that he thought didn't line up with, with science, with kind of natural explanation. So in the Gospels, interestingly enough, he takes out all of Jesus' miracles. Anytime you see Jesus heal somebody, or anytime you see Jesus cast out a demon, it's not there anymore, okay? Now, if you've read the Gospels, you're going to be aware that this is a large part of the Gospels, okay? All that you're left with are a few short stories and some teachings from Jesus. But Jesus didn't have medicine, he wasn't writing prescription pads, and there are no such thing as demons, so this whole exorcism thing is really weird. So we're just going to cut all those stories out. Also, Jefferson's Bible ends with Jesus' death. There's no resurrection story, which again is kind of a central part to the Christian faith. But for Jefferson, again, there's no easy natural explanation for the resurrection, so he cuts it out. Now, I tell you this story because I think you and I are often tempted to do the same thing. We come to the Bible with our own definition of how the world works. And we often cut out whether they're actually taking the pages out or just ignoring things in the Bible that don't fit our view of the world. And, and what we should do is the opposite. We should come to the Bible and say, perhaps our view of the world should be challenged by the view that the Bible presents us. Maybe the world works a little bit differently than how we thought it previously worked. Okay? So keep that in your back pocket. Buckle up. Here we go. Daniel chapter 10. Chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. We'll start reading. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, or it was about a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, now Daniel's talking, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So the prophet Daniel is in exile in Babylon, and he is mourning. He spent three weeks upset. We don't know exactly about what. People have made guesses, but for whatever reason, he's upset. He is in this time of fasting, so he's not eating delicacies. He's not drinking wine or you know grape juice and root beer, all that. He's not eating meat, okay? And he's not using lotion. It's an interesting part to put in here, but think of Middle Eastern climate. This was an important part of keeping yourself healthy and clean and hygienic, but he's, for, he's, he's, he's fasting from all those things, okay? For three weeks, he's in a state of mourning and prayer, and then finally, after three weeks, 21 days, he gets an answer. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, 
His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. People said that about my eyes, but that's not important. His arms, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So Daniel sees this heavenly, celestial, glorious kind of man in front of him. He's the only one who sees it, but everybody else kind of senses that something's wrong, and so they leave. Not very good friends. Daniel's on his own, okay? And Daniel's left here with this, this person. So I was left alone, I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me, verse 8. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So try to get yourself in the story, okay? Daniel has, for three weeks, been praying and mourning and crying out to the Lord. Three weeks is a long period of time to receive no kind of feedback from God. Finally, someone shows up, but it's almost too much for Daniel to handle. And it's such an intimidating and glorious kind of vision given to him that he faints, Okay, he loses all of his strength. His body does this kind of I quit moment. Okay, and it just stops working. And he falls down in a deep sleep with his face in the ground. And behold, a hand touches him, touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So he's touched by this person, and he's able to get on all fours. So baby steps. Okay, he wakes up. He's on all fours. And he said to me, "O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright." For now I have been sent to you. And when I had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. He said, Daniel, stand up. This is good news, okay? I've not come to destroy you. Don't be scared. I've come to actually explain um, what it is you've been praying about. I've come to actually give you encouragement, give you hope, give you understanding into the situation that you're in. Here's where it's going to get a little confusing, because the angel is about to, uh, we assume this is an angel, it seems like a messenger from the Lord, he's about to explain why it took 21 days for him to come and talk to Daniel. And this is where we start having some questions. Verse 13, he says this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For this vision is for days yet to come. So you have a few characters here. And the identity of these characters is important. You have Daniel the prophet. You have this messenger. It seems like an angel. We're not sure exactly who it is. People have guessed the angel Gabriel, who seems to be the angel of, of messages in the Old Testament. Gabriel's in the other parts of Daniel. So it seems to make sense that it perhaps could be Gabriel here bringing this message. But Gabriel says, as he was coming out to come give this message to Daniel, um, a problem started to occur. He kind of got stuck. He got in a conflict with what, what he terms here as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And it happened for 21 days. And the only reason he was able to get out of this and keep going to Daniel is because Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him um, while he was left there with the kings of Persia. We'll read later on in Daniel 10 that it's still going on. So this messenger needs to get back into the fray, right? This fight is not over. He's got to go. Michael's kind of holding down the fort for a few moments so that he can finish his job. But he needs to get back because there's some serious things going on here. So what you need to understand is that classically, throughout Christian history, people have interpreted the, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia as an angel, as a messenger. 
perhaps what you might call a demon, an angel who is not doing what God has wanted him to do. Michael is very famous throughout Christian history. He's the archangel. Okay? He is mentioned four times in the Bible, twice in Daniel, once in Jude, and once in Revelation. He is the kind of leader of the heavenly armies, the chief prince. Okay? I was named after Michael. Okay? That's in the muscle. That's how you get the job done. Okay? There's a problem in the spiritual realm. God sends out, dispatches Michael. He goes, this seems to be what's happening here. Now, people have tried to wonder, is there a way to read this without thinking in these weird spiritual terms? Could this prince of Persia, could it be a human? I mean, could this be an actual human? In fact, interpreters throughout the years have actually suggested various humans in the Persian kingdom that perhaps it could be. The problem here is twofold. One, this word prince is a word in the Hebrew, in Daniel, and both elsewhere in the Old Testament for spiritual being. Again, Michael, who's clearly a spiritual being here, one of the chief princes, one of the head angels, comes to help out. The other is that this, this person, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, is obviously in this kind of realm of the messenger who came and then of Michael. Um, it's, it's not really in a context where you would understand them to use this word prince in a different meaning uh, attached to it. It seems to be, whether we like it or not, some kind of angelic conflict going on that caused him to delay and his getting to Daniel. So in verse 15, Daniel's trying to take this all in. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. He's out again, okay? He falls down. This is too much for him. He's overwhelmed. He can't talk. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Again, we don't know who this is. This could be the messenger who's already been speaking to Daniel. Perhaps it's the second character. Some perhaps see in children of man something close to son of man which might think this is an appearance of Jesus here. He touched his lips, then he opens his mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Daniel here says, look, this is too much. All right, This is not what I signed up for. I'm fine without getting an answer to the prayer at this point. If you could just leave me be, I'd be fine. This is the second time I've fallen down on the ground. This is really an overwhelming experience for me, okay? And then in verse 18, um, this, this person with the appearance of a man touches him again and strengthens him. Verse 19, and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there is more conflict in the future. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these Michael, your prince. Now, there's a lot going on here. And just kind of the introduction. We're not even told what the vision was that Daniel had yet. And we're not told what the meaning of that vision was. It's a pretty simple, straightforward meaning. It, it fits in line with much else what we've seen in Daniel. The kind of real interesting stuff is happening right here in this introduction. What's going on? Um, there is this picture of spiritual warfare, this picture of this angelic heavenly realm where all this action is taking place that affects and, and influences things that happen on the earth. And here's the question I want to ask this morning. Do you believe that? When you view the world, is that the view of the world that you have? That there are spiritual creatures, angelic beings, there's a whole other realm where action takes place that affects and influences the things that happen on this earth. Let me tell you, I spent the week scouring how people interpret Daniel chapter 10. 
Um, looking at the handful of people who interpret this in, in human terms and, and don't see spiritual creatures here, and looking at Hebrew scholars and, and, and historical interpretations throughout church history, and I've got to tell you, the majority, the far majority of convincing readings is that whether we like it or not, Daniel 10 is talking about angels, fighting angels, influencing things that happen on the earth. And as I read it, the question that occurred to me, and then that I thought I would ask you is, is that how you see the world operating? Is that how you picture the world? Is that your view of the world? So, for instance, if you have been praying to God and you haven't heard anything, is one of the things, one of the options up in your mind running for why you haven't heard an answer that perhaps God had sent an angel to tell you, but he's been caught up with the demon somewhere else? Probably, if I'm guessing, not. Okay? You're like, well, maybe I got the answer. It was no. Maybe... I just missed the answer, who knows, but I'm not probably going to guess around this kind of spiritual conflict. Or is, when, when you observe something bad happen in the world, there's lots of explanations for it. You start thinking through what's going on, what's behind it. Is one of the explanations up and running in your mind that perhaps there's some spiritual activity, there's some heavenly conflict that has influenced and led to this situation? So, for instance, this past week, I don't know if you, you saw this, but there's another middle school shooting, another school shooting. Um, a teacher was killed. Uh, two students, I think, were injured in Nevada, I believe. Um, so when you see something like that, right, there's a lot of things to think about. Mental health, all kinds of things going on, all things, kinds of things in play. But are you wondering, I mean, it's one of the first things you think, going, oh, I wonder what the kingdom, the prince of this kingdom was doing with this prince of, I mean, that's not really an option, I don't think, in most of our, our minds. It's not how we interpret and view the world. Or we've got a fall festival coming up this afternoon, okay? When we wake up and it's raining, do we think, oh, man. There's some kind of big spiritual conflict happening today, trying to keep us from this fall festival, trying to keep us from, from enjoying this community-wide event. I don't think this is how we normally look at the world. Now, that might be okay if Daniel 10 was alone in its presentation of these spiritual realities. The problem is it's not. The scripture is full of these kind of explanations and these kind of stories and these kind of statements that there are spiritual, supernatural beings that make decisions, have conflict, and whose decisions influence what we experience on the world. So we might say this morning that, that Daniel 10 in the Bible suggests this to us. There's more to the world than simply the natural. There's more to the world than simply the natural, than simply what we can measure and, 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 and put and reproduce in a scientific laboratory, what we can see and observe and, and describe, there's more. There's more than, than just the natural. Now, you and I live, quick history lesson, on the opposite side of what we call the Enlightenment, or the scientific revolution, or the dawn of modernity. This is um, a period of time where human beings have learned a whole lot about how the world works. And one of the things that that's caused us to do is question the explanations we used to give for things. So humanity for all time used to explain unexplainable things by talking about the supernatural, by talking about God, spirits, good spirits, and evil spirits. This is a phenomenon across the globe for all of history. Well, a few hundred years ago, we started learning about cancer. We started being able to put things under microscopes. We started being able to observe <coughs> things and, and work in ways we hadn't been able to work before. And one of the things that people postulated, that people guessed, was that the more we learn about the world, the better our science gets, the less we'll need to believe in God. Why do I need to say God gave you that sickness when I can actually watch the bacteria that gives you that sickness, right? I can observe how the world works naturally, everything that I can see in front of me, and I no longer need to reference anything supernatural, anything beyond just our physical, observable, repeatable, testable world. 
And this has, I claim this morning, even influenced how you and I as Christians read the Bible. We come to the Bible with a naturalistic worldview. We are automatically skeptical of anything that claims reference to something beyond what we can see and measure versus something that we can see kind of with science. As Christians, though, you and I believe in something called the supernatural, something beyond just the natural. So if you believe in God, you believe there's more to the world than just the natural. There's something that you can't measure. There's something that you can't observe. You can't put God in a laboratory and test him, okay? You're not going to be able to find out different characteristics about God by putting him under a microscope. This is beyond science. This is beyond history. There's something beyond just the natural. Now, what I think has happened, though, is that the Enlightenment or, or this kind of naturalistic worldview, the effect it's had on Christians is not to make them not believe in God, but what it's really done, if you watch um, Christians throughout history, is it's taken out our belief in angels and demons. That's what's been lost after the Enlightenment. We've, we've kept our belief in God because we felt like it was central to being a Christian, but we've slowly but surely, sometimes subtly, sometimes not subtly, ignored all this stuff about supernatural beings, angels and demons, spiritual beings other than God. We've, we've kind of gotten rid of it. We've kind of stopped looking at it. And, and in fact, this is a, a very Christian thing to do. A, a scholar named Rudolf Boltman says this, It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. I mean, throughout the Bible, this is a world full of spiritual beings. The New Testament, the Gospels, is a demon-filled world. There's demons everywhere. And this is, a, this is not something that you can easily take out of the Bible, but Christians say, look, in, in this age, we can't believe in those type of things. What I want to say to you this morning, though, is perhaps, perhaps our worldview should be questioned by the Bible. Perhaps we should not be questioning the Bible with our kind of naturalistic worldview. So here's what I'll suggest. In the scriptures, the picture of the world you get is a universe that's populated with spiritual beings. A universe that's populated with spiritual beings. Now, what we've tried to do, again, is we've taken these spiritual beings, angels and demons, and we've tried to make them metaphor or symbols. The demonic activity and, and, and Satan are simply metaphors for, for human evil. They're psychological evaluations. Um, but again, I want to suggest the Bible doesn't let you do that. The Bible has this very clear kind of personal descriptions given to these supernatural beings. So in the Gospels, for instance, what, what people try to do is say, you see this, this demonic activity in the Gospels, and when Jesus casts out a demon, what he's really doing is healing someone of a mental illness or, or, or some kind of disease of that nature, okay? Now, in some cases in the Gospels, some stories, you might have some sort of argument there, but there's plenty of stories in the Gospels where there are demons who talk to Jesus, and who then leave humans to go into pigs and do things inside of pigs. The original swine flu, okay? <laughs> this is not something easily explained away as a mental illness. This is a clear clue here. The way you have is a belief, a worldview, that there are personal beings, spiritual beings, who are actively working and acting on and inside of creation. This is throughout the Bible. I don't think you can easily take this out of the Bible. Um, I'm skeptical, just like you're skeptical. When I hear about spiritual things and spiritual beings doing this or that and demon possessions and all these kind of things, I have that Western, Western modern person skepticism. But then I read the Bible, and I can't imagine reading the Gospels without demons. I can't imagine demons in the Gospels <coughs> being a metaphor for evil. It's so central to the narrative of Scripture that I, I can't read it that way. I'd also say the world around us gives us problems if we want to take out spiritual beings from our understanding of how the world works. So historically, 
Most human beings, it's been axiomatic to them that there are spiritual creatures. For all of history, there seems to be something inherent to a human life that says, we observe there's more than what we can see. There are things happening around us that we can't explain, and there are things that go bump in the night. For all of history, human beings have done this. Even globally today, if you are, um, today if you're sitting there and going, you know what, I, I would rather choose to interpret this in another way, other than a personal kind of spiritual creature, you're in the minority of people who live right now. I mean, globally, most Christians have this very spiritual kind of experience where they're involved with angels and demons and those kind of things. And then the world, culturally, globally, also is this very spiritual place. The predictions that people made after the scientific revolution that people would stop being religious were wrong. Bolon was wrong when he said you can't believe in science and go to the doctor and still hold on to these spirits. They do. People who go get CAT scans and have surgery very much believe and experience this spiritual world. In America, I mean, you're aware of this, right? This new age kind of occult Wiccanism. I mean, this is exploding all over the world. Where people are saying, we've experienced something beyond what we can see. There are spirits. There are things happening that we can't explain. And there are things that go bump in the night. One of the more interesting things, if you watch kind of academia, is that anthropologists, so people who study humans and study human culture, secular anthropologists, are slowly but surely starting to kind of give a nod to this idea that there are maybe these spiritual realities in the world. So after the Enlightenment, when... when Rich white people went over to third worlds to study humans. They would often write about them in demeaning ways. So say, look at these people. They still believe in spirits. They still believe in demons. They explain this with this and this and this. Um, in the past 50, 100 years or so, there's been this real big push in the academic world, not Christian world, academic world, to say you can't automatically assume their worldview is wrong. And do you want to know why they're doing this? Because anthropologists can't help but write we saw something fly across the room. We saw this happen, and we saw this happen. And there's no explanation in our worldview. Now, do we think it was a spirit? No. But to be academically honest, we have to write down our experiences without saying we made it up. We saw it. It was there. You have actually story after story of famous secular, not Christian anthropologists converting to tribes that believe in these kind of spiritual experiences because of their experience studying. One of the most famous, I can give you three or four big names right now. One of the most famous is Edith Turner. She was the wife of an anthropologist. Her husband died. They worked in Africa in a tribe in Nubi. Uh, her husband died, and she, instead of going home, stayed there and converted into the tribe, became a part of this local village. And she wrote this, this big book, Educated University American Post-Enlightenment Person, okay? Um, wrote this book describing her experiences, describing why she felt they explained reality better than the world she had been brought up in in the secular university, and she ends with a famous quote that's really gotten a lot of play in the world. It goes like this. She goes, there is spirit stuff, period. There is spirit affliction, period. It isn't a matter of metaphor or symbol or even psychology, period. That's how she ends her account. I mean, these are educated, educated people who, who experience these things and go, look, there's more than just this naturalistic explanation of the world. There's more um, going on in the world. The scriptures teach this. There's there's things other than physical beings, humans, animals, what we would naturally call angels and demons. Again, maybe not two distinctions of creatures, though. Demons would just be angels, spiritual beings who, who aren't doing maybe what they're supposed to do. You have Gabriel in the Bible. You have Michael, again, who's the archangel. Now, if you have your, your scriptures, turn with me to Psalm chapter 82. I want to just highlight a couple texts perhaps you're not familiar with or haven't looked at, haven't paid a lot of attention to. 
So what's the purpose of these, these spiritual creatures? Why do they exist? Why did God create them? Well, according to the scriptures, they seem to have been created to help God govern the universe. That's a kind of way for God to, to govern and accomplish his will in the universe. Um, so look in Psalm 82. We'll pick up in verse 1 here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, plural, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said to them, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, Psalm 82 opens up, and God, the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, is in the midst of a divine council. This is actually a common theme throughout the Old Testament, that there is this group of spiritual beings who give reports to God. Do you remember the book of Job? Um, where Job, the righteous man, has his stuff taken away from him. This is the background to the entire book of Job. Okay? Satan there is seen as like the prosecuting attorney in this council. He comes to give a report to God about what is happening in his universe. You have this kind of divine council here. Um, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see this word gods in plural. And again, what, what we do is we go back and read it. Is we, we just kind of ignore it. We go, well, we'll just figure that out later. And we, we kind of skip over it. Um, we, I think, would use the terminology angels or demons. In the Old Testament, you see the word God. Okay, It's the supernatural being. The Old Testament pictures a world where there are more than one supernatural being. Now, never mistake this. There's one supreme supernatural being, God. But in fact, one of the most common ways of describing God in the Old Testament is to say that he's above the other gods. Assuming that there are other God, other spiritual creatures. There are none among the gods like you, O Lord. You have created them. There's this big gulf between you and these other spiritual creatures, but there are these spiritual creatures. Now, again, as Western modern people, we read this and we go, is this not, I mean, does this not go fly in the face of monotheism? We believe in one God, one true God, one God um, who created all things. Well, yes, that's true. But if you read the Bible honestly, there are other spiritual things involved in the world. Um, renowned scholar N.T. Wright says this, the postulation of spiritual beings other than the one true God has nothing to do with saying monotheism. If it does, we have very few examples of monotheism anywhere, especially the Hebrew Bible. Monotheism is not this way of ridding the world of any other spiritual beings. It's a way of saying that God, the one true God, created those spiritual beings, stands over them. You have this divine counsel that you see here throughout the scriptures. Now, some believe, based on Daniel 10, that there are angels, these gods, these divine people, uh, who control or govern certain territories, territorial spirits. Um, they get this from Daniel 12, Daniel chapter 20. The ancient church believed this, and that was their classic text to do this. So, again, you might not be familiar with this. I'm not too familiar with it. But you don't have to go far down the road to find a church that will practice what's called strategic level deliverance where they try to identify and then work against evil spirits who control certain areas. So again, you don't have to work too hard to find a map of Houston and then names of certain demons and certain spirits who are over certain parts of Houston and they kind of track their, their works and track their activity and track you know, what they're doing and how we're going against them and they, they pray against deliverance, those kind of things. Um, now, 
if you're kind of thinking, well, then maybe I could maybe buy some spiritual beings in the world, but maybe that's too far. Okay, I'm with you. I, I think that's a little extra biblical. But watch this. Some Christians have just gone in the other direction, right? I think the culture I'm more familiar with, we ignore the spiritual beings. And these are the people who say, they're spiritual beings, full-on scale map attack, okay? We're going we're gonna to systematize this. We're going to name them all. We're going to find them all. We're going to map this out down to the very last detail. Um, but Daniel 10 is the only sense you get that there are these spirits associated with certain people. And then that, even in Daniel 10, there's no, Daniel doesn't do anything to them, right? There's no call for Daniel to pray against them or name them or anything of that nature. Um, perhaps that is going too far. Hebrews 2, angels are these, these messengers or ministers for, for God's people. Now, the, the maybe more intense part of this, as it's portrayed in the Bible, is not only are there spiritual beings... But there's conflict in the spiritual world. In fact, Daniel consistently paints the problems that Israel is facing with spiritual conflict. He, he kind of pulls the curtain back behind history and sees these, these spiritual conflicts as being, in a sense, involved with and behind these, these human and earthly problems. And so there's more, I think, according to the, the scriptures, there's more conflict in our world than what we can see. Christians have called this spiritual warfare. There's this conflict in the heavenlies. Again, look in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council, but in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. They've not been doing what he set out for them to do. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak, to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, something must hide. Nevertheless, like men, you'll die. And fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Throughout the Bible, you see this kind of warfare motif. We've talked about this throughout the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament, God is constantly battling these evil forces in his creation that seek to resist his will. In the New Testament, Jesus shows up and there are demons everywhere. Jesus and later New Testament authors will say, Satan is the ruler of this world. And they'll say, I've come to destroy his works, to take back over what's rightfully mine. You can picture Jesus' entire ministry as this one single act of reclaiming what's properly his. And every, every single instance in Jesus' life, his ministry, when he casts out a sickness, when he casts out a demon, when he forgives someone of their sin, when he goes to the cross and dies and resurrects, this is all him reclaiming something that's been taken away, something that's under kind of enemy, enemy um, possession, under enemy belonging. Um, now, what's interesting about this is it seems like spiritual beings in the scriptures have free will. Which is, which is, I think, again, one step further than we often think of spiritual beings. So in the Western world, when we acknowledge the existence of angels, we often imagine them as mindless, volitionless, like willless creatures who just kind of mindlessly do what God has asked them to do. We don't think of them as persons with desires or motives or with the ability to, to go against or go with God's will. But that's what, again, this picture you get in Daniel 10, and again, the picture you get throughout the scriptures. Even in Psalm 82 here, you have these, these spiritual creatures who aren't doing what they're supposed to do, who aren't judging the world and influencing the world the way they're supposed to influence the world, and God promises his judgment. Flip with me one more text to Genesis chapter 6. Just so I can really make sure that you'll leave here with lots of questions, I want to read to you Genesis 6. If you've never read this, this is just the best day that you've ever been alive, okay? This is actually a story in Genesis 6 that is the background story, the reason given for why God brings the flood. Remember Noah's Ark, the cute animals, everybody drowned, okay? This is the, the flood story, real famous. This is actually in Genesis 6, the story that led to the flood, okay? 
If you're not aware of it, um, this will be very interesting to you. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or these supernatural kind of giant people, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, most people, most scholars who read this text, see sons of God as angels, these divine beings, messengers. Some have suggested... Let's not read it that way. Let's read them as humans, okay? But you get into problems with this. Son of God is not used in these contexts to refer to humans. In fact, Son of God is explicitly compared to the daughters of men. And, and specifically, the, the effect of them marrying each other is to create these unnatural, giant, kind of supernatural beings that weren't meant to be in the earth that caused God great distress. Where he says, this is not part of the plan. These people are not Nephilim. They're not supposed to be roaming around here. This is pictured as kind of the height of how... Far creation's gone off track, which leads to God with his biggest judgment as of yet, killing everybody except for Noah and a few of the animals. <clears throat> even the angels, even the spiritual beings decide to come down and, and start some ruckus. Now again, questions, right? Well, who knew angels could have sex? Who knew angels could enter? Who knew they could find people attractive, right? Yes, all these questions, all these things, but again, we want to read the scriptures and see what worldview they're presenting and not what worldview we'd want to impose on them. The scriptures paint a, a, a world where, where spiritual beings can cooperate with God's will or can resist God's will. And in fact, their choices can influence events in our life. Daniel 10, the prayer, the answer to the prayer is delayed. At least in part, their obedience or disobedience affects our welfare, affects the world that we experience. It's a different world from the one that we often imagine, but perhaps the one the Bible is inviting us to acknowledge. The reality of spiritual beings, the reality of the supernatural. Now, a lot to think about, a lot of questions for one day. We will talk about Daniel 10 for one more week, okay? So uh, we'll take a break next week, and then in two weeks we'll come back to Daniel 10 and talk some more about what's happening here and how it maybe um, has implications for our lives. But I don't want to leave you hanging, okay? So, so three ways this morning as we close um, that we might respond to the reality of the supernatural. Three Christian responses to the reality of the supernatural. Number one is this. I suggest that we should wake up that we should be aware of the world that we live in. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote. He says, um, the two big mistakes when it comes to Satan and the demons is to pretend they don't exist or to pretend they're like the most important thing that's ever existed. And I think you can see that extreme in a lot of people, one or the other. But, but you've got to wake up. And so um, are we willing to challenge our faulty frameworks? Often we come to the scriptures with this idea of what God has to be like and what the world has to be like. And we cut out anything there that doesn't fit in with that definition. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to read the scriptures. I think they're supposed to read us and press our assumptions. We need to wake up. We need to realize that the world that we live in is in conflict. We often live a vacation lifestyle as Christians. We should be living instead of a warfare lifestyle. The way you live is very different in vacation than how you live in a war. In vacation, you amass all the trinkets that you can. You try to make yourself as comfortable and safe as you can. 
forget all the bad things as much as you can. We call it the American dream. In war, you sacrifice. In war, you're focused. You're strategic. In war, you realize there are things that need to change, and you can focus on yourself after those things are changed, after the mission is accomplished. We wake up. The second one is we join the battle. This is simply, again, realizing the state of the world as it is. So I learned a long time ago this real simple, simple thought that was kind of a real big deal for me at the time. It was this. As I was working with kids, I got told this a lot. I don't know why, but it was be a part of the solution and not the problem. Okay, so you've got like a group of kids rowdy. You should be not being rowdy, right? You should be part of the solution, not the problem. So in the world, right, Christians need to be part of the solution and not the problem. If there's a conflict going on, we should make sure that our lives and our decisions and our actions are leading in the right direction and not in the wrong direction. The world is headed one of two places at every moment, and every decision is going in one of two places. More like what God desires, more like his kingdom, or opposite of that. The question we should ask ourselves is, how are we influencing that? How are we using our time, our choices, our resources? Are we standing up for what's evil? I would caution against what could be called Christian magic. Okay, I don't think super, these supernatural realities call us to, to participate in. So Christian magic, I think, would be coming up with incantations that work as formulas. Things of that nature, right? Jesus' kind of revolt against evil and, and, and the demonic activity was kind of simple. I mean, he just kind of came against it, prayed against it. The disciples just kind of came against it, prayed against it. They didn't do these intense background checks. They didn't do all these intense kind of practices and rituals and naming and those kind of things. They just said, this is not what's supposed to be long. God, get rid of this. And they joined the battle, um, but they, they don't kind of fall into this kind, of, this kind of magic ritualism. The last one is this, and this is important. We rejoice and we live in God's victory. We rejoice and we live in God's victory. So, there's a, a percentage of people, I hope that this might be you, um, there's a percentage of people who, when they find out that germs exist, react in an unhealthy way. So, previous to that, right, they thought the world they lived in was full of stuff that they could touch and hold. It was beautiful, they could play with it, they could pick it up, they could set it down, they could put stuff in their mouth, they could take it out of their mouth, they could have their hands and touch other people's hands and those kind of things. And then at some point in their life, someone introduced them the reality of germs. There are invisible things on stuff that can be bad. They can make you sick. They can even kill you. And they're on your hands, and they're on other people's hands, and they're on doorknobs. They're everywhere you look. You're breathing them right now. Now, for a majority of people, they react in a mature, kind of adult way by going, okay, I didn't know that. Let me take the necessary precautions and then keep going with my life, right? I'll wash my hands after I go to the bathroom, wash my hands before I eat dinner, those kind of things. Um, there's a small percentage, I don't know if you're aware of this, who react in like paralytic fear, who their whole world crumbles around them. And we call them germaphobes. Right? They can't do anything anymore. They germex their whole body every 10 seconds. Okay? They won't shake your hand. They're not going to touch your hand. Um, they're not going to eat anything that they haven't been able to put in their little space bubble okay? and just vacuum off all the germs and the microbes. That's not the reaction I don't think Christians should have to, to these kind of reality of supernatural things. They shouldn't be paralyzed in fear. The most common command actually in Scripture is don't be afraid. When the, the angel shows up to Daniel to give him news, he goes out of his way to make sure Daniel knows, this is good news, guy. Calm down. Stand up. This is, not, this, is not a bad, this is not a bad reality for you. This is good news for you. We're taking control of this. We, we have this okay. And we realize that Satan is a real, demons are a real, but defeated enemy. We've been defeated on the cross. Um, you might say Christians are higher on the spiritual food chain. 
We're raised to the, the heavenlies with Christ, Ephesians. Above all spiritual things, above all spiritual powers. Um, this is not something that, that keeps us up at night. This is something that we're aware of and deal with effectively and, and deal with the way we've been commanded to to fight with spiritual weapons, prayer and faith and love and hope, the spirit, the sword, the, the scriptures. But not something that, that cripples us. It's something that leads us to celebrate even more the victory that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. So perhaps the world is a little bit messier than we have always imagined. But perhaps Christ's grace is even better than we've ever imagined. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the time this morning to worship and the time to uh, read your scriptures. Even the parts that perhaps confuse us more than they make sense to us. We pray that you would give us the clarity and insight to see the world rightly. To see the world as you have revealed it to us. That we would be able to act faithfully in it, to worship you faithfully in it. We thank you again for your son, for his victory in the world, over all that's gone wrong, over all evil, over, over our sin, over the death that we experience, over Satan, for the victory that he's accomplished. We thank you for the spirit that you've given to us. Father, we pray that that spirit would be powerful in us and around us, that we would walk in the spirit and live by the spirit, and that his power would be evident uh, in the way that we love you and follow you and seek to share the good news of what you've done with the world around us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.